Welcome to the new game Bullshit. Ready to go? Ready to go. <clears throat> All right. So um, I'm Jeffrey Wittenhagen. Uh, the panel was announced as the complete NES. Um, I told them that, you know, this is more like a 90s nostalgia panel. Um, reason being is because basically all of my books revolve around the 90s. And a lot of my favorite memories, even in the NES, revolve in the 90s. So even the complete NES, like, I didn't get my first NES till around the Mario 3 era. Mario 3 was released in... Yeah. 1990. So, I mean, it's really the 90s is when I was heavily into gaming and when I started to come into my own and started to get really good at gaming. Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things. So, I'm Jeffrey Wittenhagen. I'm an author. I wrote the complete NES, which was on the billboard. I also have a side project that's the Video Game Culture Chronicles. And my latest book is the complete SNES, and it just got funded on Kickstarter like a week ago. So, yay! Yeah. Um, I also do a podcast. It's called Video Game Bull S. <laughs> that way, there's kids walking around. That's BGBS. And we BS about video games. And this guy that's to my right, um, I never announce any kind of guests because I like to keep my panels like spontaneous and I try to get as many people as I possibly can some people fall through like uh, the guy who's currently in number one on the the Kong off kind of disappeared but that's okay um so over here we got yeah my name is Greg Caldwell um I am his sidekick for the panel here uh I'm the lead developer of a game of a homebrew game for the NES called Haunted Halloween 85 and uh I like Jeff didn't really, really get into gaming until the 90s. Um, I was always like a generation behind on the video game consoles. I had an Atari when everyone was playing Nintendo, and it wasn't until same same sort of thing when Mario 3 came out, and then finally family saved up enough money and got a Nintendo, and then psh, that was it. Yeah, exactly. And like, I wasn't the kid on the block that had every system. I actually had a lot of rentals. So I would go to the rental store, and one of my major things that I'm doing now is, is I have this rental wall that I call it, and I actually built a shelving on my wall, and I have six games wide, six games tall, and I have them all facing front like it was in a rental store, because that's like my nostalgia. I'm like, to a T, I'm a complete OCD, like, nostalgia nerd. I love it. Oh, yeah, that was one of the best <laughs> things, going into video game stores. Uh, just the, I mean, I spent way more money on rentals than on actual actual games. I probably owned about six Nintendo games back in the day mm -hmm. and just rented everything else. Hey, that's that's the way to go. It's amazing. Uh, so basically this, this panel is going to be completely off-cuff. That's how I like to do them. We're drinking beer, having a good time. Um, this whole time I would like audience participation as more people come in. You know, we'll, we'll invite them to come talk too. And basically we're going to go, like I have like a little list of stuff that we talk about and I would like to get people just to come up and you know, share their stories too because it's all about stories. So like my side project, that's all that is. It's everything from the year 1990 in that book and it's just stories. It's personal stories of what I did with 1990. And that's what I like doing at my panels too because it makes it fun and spontaneous and gets everybody involved. So the first one that I always go for, um, name a game that was ported from an arcade game that is completely different on the console version. 
We got somebody. Come up to the microphone, like right there, or you can just yell it out. Ninja Gaiden. Ninja Gaiden. Yeah. You got any experience with Ninja Gaiden? Well, I never I got do. to play it in the arcade. Uh, the, the arcade near me did not have Ninja Gaiden, and when I tried it for the NES, I sucked, and I was like, nope, I can't, I can't keep up with this game. It was just too much. Yeah, it's, <laughs> Ninja Gaiden's a classic. And the, the thing about Ninja Gaiden that I really like is that like, it was ridiculously hard, but you can continue infinitely. That was the fun part. Until you got near the end and it shot you back a bunch of levels. Like I think it's once you got past Jekio, the first time you fought the, the big main bad guy. It would send you back all the way to the beginning of that one level. Even if you got all the way to the end boss, the final form, all the way back. Just, just kick you back. Yeah, I can't imagine playing that, throwing quarters at that game, how much money people would have wasted on that. Well, the main difference between the arcade, and you, you can correct me too, and the Nintendo one, is that like it's more of a final fight beat-em-up than a platformer for the Ninja Gaiden arcade. And like the jumping, like in the, I remember the Nintendo one, the jumping is like, always like a classic, like you show off your skills because you can sit there and go back and right. forth on the walls. And in the arcade, it didn't feel as fluid. Um, one major thing, too, about gaming nostalgia, you can build the nostalgia this weekend playing pinball. That's how I feel about nostalgia. I didn't play the Ninja Gaiden on the arcade until many, many years later when I was playing it on a MAME arcade in my house. And I started playing Ninja Gaiden. I'm like, oh, my God, this is way different than the NES one. I don't like this. <laughs> that was just my own personal nostalgia. But you got to realize, too, when you're playing these things, it's like playing it back in the day. I may have liked it a lot more than yeah, playing right. it with nowadays when you have every game at your whim. What, did you get it first on the arcade or uh, console? Console. So do you like the, do you have a preference? Yeah, console. Yeah. Console one's better. I think that's the general consensus. I haven't found somebody that's pro Ninja Gaiden, but th there's got to be somebody out there that loves it. We call that the gold medal game standard. Everybody has their gold medal game. There's somebody out there that likes Color a Dinosaur on NES. There is somebody out there. <laughs> There's somebody out there. Um, so, all right, so the next one was, was like a gimme when we were doing some trivia, but um, name a game that you were tricked by from simply seeing the box art in the store. <laughs> yeah. You got one? I th well, the big thing with Nintendo was that you know, at least for the, the Black Box series, that was a big thing, right? Mm -hmm. Only show graphics that are in the game because they don't want to trick anybody. And then I guess once they s established themselves, then you started to get stuff like the uh, like the Contra uh, covers and stuff. Oh, maybe, yeah. Maybe that would be it, w would be Contra, because I didn't see it being so much of like like the alien thing coming into it. And you don't really get it until the very end, and it's like you, you see this this cover, and you're like, "Oh, I'm gonna be battling aliens the whole time." And it's yeah. more like, um, "Wait, I'm just I'm just like Rambo, pretty much, you know, in the jungle." I don't know. You guys got anyone anything out there that fooled you? Well, I'm a sucker for good box art. I love it, but uh, I'll go the opposite way. Okay. Game that had horrible box art, but was excellent. Mega Man. Mega Man, horrible box art, but it's excellent. Yeah, because it's like the one. The one classic question is: What did that artist even play or know about or get any guidance from Capcom before they made that drawing? Because I mean, he's on the pistol. Oh, I can chime in on that. At Magfest, I saw there we go. <laughs> he was at. He did a panel discussion, and he had no idea. They, the people, told him like. Okay, he's going to be like an action hero, you know, and he's going to he's going to shoot. It's going to be a shooter. So he's like, "Okay, well what what kind of weapons or whatever?" They're like, "I don't know, give him a gun." 
So we, and make him bow-legged, too, and a little overweight as yeah. an action hero. <laughs> like, go ahead and do that. It's make a man. Yeah. <laughs> like, so like he, I mean, what was he thinking? That's he the classic. He was like, he's like, like, I gave him a pistol because he's like, I, I, you know, I had no idea. I just it was like, okay, a gun. I guess you give, give him a pistol. He'll shoot things. <laughs> and then he saw the game, and he was like, well, I got to change this. And they were like, no, 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 it's fine. It's, to- it's totally fine. And he was like... I'm getting paid no matter what. So. And didn't he make Mega Man 2 as well? He did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so he didn't even learn after the first one because Mega Man 2 was <laughs> just as just bad. He just wanted to, he, from what he was saying is... You know that crappy just one that you did for Mega Man 1? Let's, let's do it again. Just get rid of the yellow. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be all right. And draw a crazy human-looking version of Crash Man in the background with a monocle. He needs a monocle. Right. <laughs> it's like, like, why would you do that? But people like, love it, right? I mean, you I mean, love it now. Here's the thing. Right? It's so bad that it's good nowadays. That's that's the classic thing about the Mega Man box art. There, there's another one that's right in your realm. It's called Ghost Lion, and on the front there's like it's a it looks almost like a female with like a feathered thing in her hair, and there's like a a little white tiger next to her, and it looks like a terrible painting. And the, the game is like a Final Fantasy RPG, <laughs> and the actual Japanese box art's like anime style and looks really cool. And once I saw the anime one, I'm like, oh, this actually makes sense to what it is. But, like, the actual American box art, I was like, I'm never going to play this game. This looks terrible. And <laughs> it's one of those things. Yeah. So, so what was one that you were tricked at that you thought would be a great game? Well, I, yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, Fester's Quest, I thought... Fester's Quest. ...was going to be... I was like, this is pretty cool looking, and it's going to be creepy, and I'm going to really dig it. And I... Rental, of course, mm-hmm. and I took it back the next day. I mean, there's, there's a whole thing on the whole licensed gig where you have Jaws and Friday the 13th. And, I mean, those are all LJN-style LJN, games right. anyways. Right. But a lot of those games that were licensed gave a bad stain because they would simply not give the programmers enough guidance and then give them a really short de- de- deadline. Yeah. And, yeah, like, yeah. when you're putting out a game, and you know you make games, if I gave you a deadline and told you to get out a game, you would cut some of the features. You would you have, have to. to. You have to. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You wouldn't be able to refine it as much. You wouldn't be able to test it as much. And that happened all the time. That's the classic E.T. story. Why is E.T. one of the worst games? Because they rushed him. They made him make it in, what, 30 days or something? Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. For for 30 days, that's a pretty cool, complex game. (laughs) Imagine what they could have done if he had, like, a six-month-to-a-year leeway. It would be a complex Atari game. It would be pretty cool because he was able to do complex things within that time frame. I'm just disappointed that, you know, he's been doing panels. You know, the guy who made Howard, Scott, Warsha, like, he um, has had how much time to fix it? And he hasn't fixed it. So, I mean, like, you could you could make it your own. Like, if you have your own developer's quirks, you could you could always fix it. Yeah. That's the one thing. But, yeah, so, so some box art is always the key because I used to go rent games. So you would go there and you would check out the box art and then you'd be like, all right, I'm going to rent that. And that's your weekend game. So if the game really stunk, you would be stuck with it the entire right. weekend. It, the one nice thing about the video game rental store where I live was they they always at least let you look through the manual. It was a uh, it was a photocopy of the manual, mm-hmm. so it was all in black and white, and it was on like big sheets of paper. But you could at least look a little more deeply into the game. Of course, same sort of thing. You could always be tricked by manuals. Yeah. Were you ever burned by the classic where some of the games actually had some copyright protection as you would play them? And it would be like in the manual that you would have to have something that's integral to play the game. So you're playing and all of a sudden it's like, enter in this 
to play. The classic was Star Tropics. If you didn't have the letter, you have to take the letter, dip it in water. There's a hidden message that you had to use a code to go to a certain, was it the frequency? Yeah, it was for the... The radio. Yeah, the radio frequency to continue the game. And if you, so if you run in the game, you're pretty much SOL, and I think that was Nintendo's kind of kick to the, uh, the like blockbuster-style chains that yeah. were running their games because they want people to buy the games. And it's <laughs> that kind of stuff. You guys remember Treasure Master, where they have... Like, Treasure Master. Yeah, the contest, yes. Did anybody ever beat that contest for Treasure Master? That's a good question. Because I, I mean, I reviewed it for my for my book, but my book has concise reviews to give you a general overview of what the game is. Like Treasure Master is like a, a platformer with broken controls. Like that's what it is. Um, but like, and and I don't know if anybody ever beat that because I mean, I went there like later on and tried competing for it. Like well after the time frame, and I couldn't do anything with it. I couldn't get any of the treasures. Yeah. Like, I'm totally unfamiliar with the game. I never played it. Yeah, it was basically, it was released by the company to promote it, and they're like, alright, so whoever wins this is gonna win thousands of dollars, and they're gonna, you know, get tons of stuff. It's like, kind of like the Sword Quest games back in the day. And... Yeah, Sword Quest, where they like canceled it after the first two, and then the third one's a rare prototype. Yeah. <laughs> but like that, like it was one of those things where they had that going out there, and then they like I never heard like if anybody won it, like even back in the day. Like I remember seeing it on TV, like I saw the promos for it, and I'm like, I think it was on the the Power Team show, like with Johnny Arcade as a cartoon. And well, where was the, the contest held? The contest was held, I think it was just, like, within... Because, I mean, there was... It might have been within Funkolands or something. Do you remember the contest back in the day? I only know it from, like, GamePro magazines. I mean, so, definitely like, gaming magazines. It was something like you had to take a picture of, the, of your score or whatever the... Yeah. Um, and, like, call a number or send it in or something like that. So... Mm-hmm. Super interesting, though. Like, yeah, that's one thing I would like to like dig into more is like some of those kind of history aspects. Yeah, because like I know of it just like you do, but I don't know like the the intricate details. I would like to find whoever won it if they did, and like how they how they beat. It. I want to pick their brain because that game is a ridiculous mess. <laughs> I love it though, and that one is a complete '90s cover. It's like neon triangles and stuff, and like a dude with a backward hat on, some shades, and Treasure Master's a classic. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so, alright, here we go. Here's one for you, Gray. Share your first gaming story. For, uh, and it does, this doesn't mean the first time you play it, your first memory, your, your first great gaming story memory. Uh, ooh, wow. Dig. So, yeah, it has to be Atari. Um, because, you know, that was the first system I had when everybody else was playing Nintendo, which was very difficult to deal with. Um, <laughs> I remember, I guess, probably, I used to love ice hockey for Atari, and I could almost play it with my eyes closed. And it was, I guess I get, you get to the point where you, I, you only have a handful of games, and that was one where I was just like, I will play this 30 times a day and just see how bad I can beat the computer because I have nothing else to do. I grew up in a very small neighborhood with like three other kids. Absolutely. Nothing else to do. And so just day after day after day, ice hockey, ice hockey, ice hockey. My sisters would want to, you know, play like Circus Atari every once in a while. And I'd let them play like one game and I'd be like, all right, you died. And then 
ice hockey. Time again. for more ice hockey. And that's yeah, that's that's all. You've been play. playing for hours, I mean, hours, and hours, and hours. <laughs> no, that's what you would say to them when they play one game of Circus. Oh, right, You've been right. playing for hours. Yeah, put it back oh, in ice hockey. Oh, I'm sure he's been playing for hours. I want to. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's only been on there for five minutes. I, I definitely did the same thing. So yeah. Yeah, that was that, that was like my first real memory of of a video game that I was like addicted to. Yeah, yeah. Just couldn't. As simple as it was, I'm sure you guys know how simple that game is. But, uh, but yeah, that that was it. And then to move into like the the '90s generation, um, it was, I guess, Maniac Mansion was probably the thing that like I, the the game that I dreamt about playing. You know, and again, yeah, I'm yeah, playing yeah. Maniac Mansion in '92 and '93. I don't, I don't have it when it first comes out, but like I it remember still came out in the '90s. Though. Going through that game, yeah, but it, it took a couple years before I could get it. Yeah, yeah. And so it was just like, like that. It was so creepy and so there was just something about it. And I remember having these dreams about being in different rooms and finding a secret room or something or like. That uh, again, like the codes and stuff, you had to enter a certain code to get into a room, or like you turn that telescope to, and you're looking for stuff. And I would just have these mo- vivid, crazy dreams about that, and the colors. That it was such a '90s color scheme in the game, and so w- without a doubt, like in in that era of my life, like Maniac Mansion just took over my my brain. That, that was really the cool thing of back in the day is that, like, nowadays I have a million games. My backlog is longer than I'll ever have time to play in my life. It's it's insane. And it's just because games, we can get them now for a buck, or we can get tons of games, or even emulation. Like, it's like it's one of those things where it's you just have too many to play and not enough time nowadays. Yeah. Back in the day, it was like you had all the time in the world. I mean, I had a similar story with the Atari where it was like I was playing bowling. And there was different modes, the different difficulties. One was like if you bowled, it would automatically go diagonally. The other ones, it would always go straight forward. Then the other one, you could actually control the ball with the controller as it's going around. So you could always like get a strike. Yeah. So we would just sit there and mess with it and see how we could get 300s every time with every single mode. And we would play bowling like nonstop. Just yeah. like the simple games. And it's crazy to think about like you would play this square hitting down other squares for hours. <laughs> and it's just like it's one of those things where we didn't have the options to play anything else. That's what we jumped into. Yeah. Like 90s style though, I got my classic Legend of Zelda story. And, you know, I was a rental kid, so my game, I get it, I got it, it was Legend of Zelda, blew my mind to the point where, you know, I got the Zelda tattoo, like, favorite series of all time. However, the first Legend of Zelda scarred me as a kid. Never, ever did I want to play that game again after what happened to me. So I'm sitting there playing it all weekend. What would we do back in the day, because I didn't trust anything, didn't trust the saves or anything, left my Nintendo on the whole time. Um, got all the way through everything, got through, got to Ganon. As soon as he got revealed, the game flashed. And what have I not been doing the whole time? Not been saving. So my, I, I, I reset the game and I'm like, no, and it was, it was completely wiped. Even my old save that I had from before was wiped. It was all wiped, it all got deleted, and I'm like, all right, take this home, because, you know, this was a whole weekend of playing, and I had to take it back to the rental store. So the chances that I would even have gotten my save back were slim to none. And then the fact that it reset my entire playthrough, I was like, I'm done. And it wasn't until many years later when I actually saved up and got my Super Nintendo and got Link to the Past that I get back into 
Zelda again. And I'm not sure I would have been able to. I would have been too scarred. Yeah, I was. I, I was still like, I still have nightmares of that happening to me. That's the classic story, though. You're playing a game, and it resets. Yeah. Wow. Does anybody else have any stories? Any crazy stuff you always want to chat about? I mean, we got time. We like talking. Stuff that scarred you. That's what we're looking Stuff for. Stuff that scarred you. <laughs> good stories, good stories. Come on up. I didn't have enough blocks on my memory card one time to save, make a save, so I did the same thing. Which, which game was that? It was one of the... It's like uh, one of the boxing games for the Sony PlayStation. Okay. Uh, and I had gone through... It was like one of the more cartoony ones. I forget the exact name. Uh, and yeah, same thing. Left it on. And... Uh, and yeah, right towards the end, same thing. Just, 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 it just, and it glitched out. Yeah, you and left on a PS One. Yeah, for like, and left that show, disc was, spinning in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, probably like eleven years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just, oh my god. But uh, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, I'm never playing that again. <laughs> That's what I would think. Like, if if I did that, I'd just be like. It's not meant to be. I'm never touching this thing again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> this game's gone. Snap. <laughs> PlayStation style. Uh, to get off topic here, just something that you had talked about. Off uh, topic's about, fun. About colors. Because um, this is something I deal with. So making um, Nintendo games, the color palette is extremely limited. Uh, like 50-some colors. One of the things about the 90s that stands out the most in my head is the color, the colors of clothes, the, the neons, the stuff like that that people wore. Um, is In my mind, that, that was something that kind of uh, defined the, the NES era. Was the, mm-hmm. You know, like Friday the 13th, Jason is purple. It's like, why, you know, why the hell is he purple? <laughs> Looking now at the color palette, I can see because there was no, like, dark gray color that you could make him or something like that. Yeah. So does... You know, do you guys out there like you are their favorite kind of color palettes? Obviously, this is for anything that's going to be a little bit older, earlier '90s, where you would say, "I love the color palette or the color scheme of this game or this uh, this console or something like that." Because to me, I'm total uh, totally stuck now again making NES games. All I want to see now is those 56 colors. But is there anything out there like you you thinking like? Okay, I, you know, I really love the, the Commodore or something like that, which had more colors available. To yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, even like the Apple IIe, any, anything like that. Does anybody have anything like that? I'd have to say the one that really stands out for me is uh, Super Nintendo. That was the big lead forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It had, had some very unique uh, colors in its palette. It could do bright, almost uh, neon or fluorescent colors. It could do duller tones. Had such a wide, yeah. wide range, no other system could duplicate it. Right, right. And so, is, is does that leave like I'm assuming that leaves like a fond memory about the system, like seeing that for the it, first time? It does. In fact, I was uh, I've always been a big audio video fanatic. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I wanted my my picture and sound to look as perfect as, as possible. I wanted my I wanted my my picture on my TV screen to look like a screen a screen grab in a magazine. Yeah. RGB is what I wanted. Of course, I, I didn't have that when I was growing up. But, you know, I'd save my money and I'd buy the best television, the best cables, the best area I could buy. But it wasn't until I got uh, uh, later on when I got an XRGB 2 plus upscan converter and connected my Super Nintendo to a, a CAD grade professional monitor that I actually saw mm-hmm. what those colors are supposed to look like. Yeah. Finally, I got it 
the way I wanted, but it was years later. Yeah. And and people that if you haven't played a retro system on a PVM, a professional video monitor, you honestly need to. It is it's night and day. Like I got a PVM from a buddy who um he started Tappers Arcade Bar in Indy in Indianapolis, and he just came across a ton of them in an old uh, TV studio, and he, he sold me one, and, like, that is my gaming TV, because it's so crisp, it's yeah. so ridiculous, yeah. like, it's, it's like, better than I could have imagined, like, you were saying, like, you wanted to look like that, it was, like, better on a PVM, when you use the right hookups and everything, it's, it's insane. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, like, the leap to color, obviously huge, mm-hmm. with the Genesis, how about, the audio going from the blips and bleeps of the sound chips and then moving on to the wave files where in the like the Super Nintendo era. Well, SNES had that Sony sound chip and that was a huge that was a huge jump again. That's in terms of other other systems. Absolutely. I think that has the best sound of any cartridge based system. Yeah. Yeah. That ever that ever came out. Yeah. But but the uh, what what some of the sound designers were able to do with the NES, mm-hmm. uh, Mega Man series specifically, those guys are rocking out with just you know, it's such a limited amount of sounds. I, 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 there's something about that the NES sound, even though it's nowhere near as good, that makes it more nostalgic. See, that is actually a really good starting point for it for another topic i don't have it in here but it's one that i've been meaning to do an actual full podcast episode on and it's called does the limitations that were presented from the nintendo make it more nostalgic or does it make the developers get more creative where they pull more out of it because they kind of have to it's one of those things too because i um i'm doing a t-shirt business with one of the artists from my Super Nintendo book, Anthony Damasi, and he's like, I don't want to move out of Nintendo because with these sprites, I can make it my own. It, and it, it's one of those things where when you tell the story the right way, gamers can use their imagination to make these characters come to life more so. Just by looking at that one sprite, they kind of start to build things on there. And it's because of the limitations why people are enjoying it. Even to this day, it kind of stands the test of time because it's not blurry, it's not over-pixelated like some of the really early 3D stuff that really doesn't hold up. Like, in Super Nintendo was like the best of that era because it was just that times times of 64, basically. There's one game that always puts me right on the fence on that subject, and that is the Super Mario All-Stars versions of the first three games with the NES originals. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know which I like better. I, there's something about the the originals that I, I, I do like better, and then then I'll, then you play the All Stars version, and, and mm-hmm. they're yeah. more like Super Mario World, which is which is great. My well, second favorite game ever. Did I, I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to you because you look like you're probably the youngest person s- sitting here. Did you get? I mean, did you play the All Stars version before the original versions of the Mario series? I think I played the originals first. The originals first? I played the originals first. Do you have a preference? I like the originals better just because I don't like the controls and the 
Oh, okay. Just visually, and, though. And actually, that's a good point, because the controls are a little off on the Super Nintendo. Like, they're just not as tight. And it's very slight, but the fact that I can play a lot of these on a world record level, like, I notice these little slights. Yeah. And it, it's, it's barely off, but that's the only reason why I tend to prefer the originals. I mean, I did grow up with the originals, too, so there's that nostalgia in there. But, like, the Super Nintendo version, like, I, I enjoyed them as well. And it could because, I think, even more so because I played them on the original first. Yeah. And it was like, oh, my God, look at all this detail and these simple backgrounds now. Right. Like, well, that's what I'm thinking because I'm assuming you got them in the order that they came out. You played all the originals first and then... I, the... I did play them, but I actually... Um, I didn't own an NES in its prime era. I okay. Was, uh, I was a master mm. system guy. Mm. I was kind of... Master always, system guy. I, nice. I always been drawn to the underdog system for some reason. <laughs> and Nintendo was dominant, so I kind of strayed away. Yeah. I had a 7800 first, then a master system, anything but the... You had the 7800. Yeah. What's your favorite game on the 7800? Um, Please tell me it's Ninja Golf. <laughs> I never played that. Huh? Not, not too many people did till later. <laughs> and, uh, I'm trying to think what I really liked. I mean, I liked... What I played the most was probably Xevious and Desert Falcon. Oh, Xevious is a really tight port on the 7800, for sure. Like, it's, it's good. Full position, too. Yeah, it's okay, but I like the, the Master System much better. But I didn't get... The Master System I was didn't own my own Nintendo. awesome. My cousin had an NES, so I played a lot of that stuff mm -hmm. without. But I didn't, I didn't uh, own my own until it was late 90s. I walked in, wow. I walked in a Walmart in Colorado Springs and... Way up on the top shelf was brand new NESs. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. I, I, I've heard some, that's some good stuff right there. Like getting the old systems, they don't really do that any much anymore. And I think it's more so because people buy them all up. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. that's one of those things. Like, that's why limited run games is a thing because people are going to go on there and buy them all up real quick. Yeah. Like, well, with, so with what you were saying about the, the graphics, you, yeah. <clears throat> especially, you know, like making these games now, I've. I continue to say this, like why people are drawn to this era. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's similar to the way that when you read a book, your brain fills in the gaps. Yes. And people like to read. I can't stand reading, mm -hmm. but some people love it. And yeah. that, they're like, I get to use my imagination and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, that's... Now, I think that's why you like my books, because my books are concise. and they're, Right, they're, yes. They're, because I mean, if you look into my books, my books are concise for the non-book reader. Like, right. And I've, I have gotten flack in the gaming community because like the writers are like, well, he didn't write enough about the games. I'm like, I don't want you oh, to have to no. send a whole weekend aside to read about Super Mario Brothers. Like, no, Super Mario Brothers is a jumping game. They give me crap about Contra because it's like, they, you said, you didn't write that it's one of the best games of all time and you go shoot stuff like... Every gamer knows you go shoot stuff in Contra right, and you jump right. and there's aliens and like I wrote about the ba basic story like it would be in the back of a, a manual. It was ridiculous like what I wrote about Contra and so for the Super Nintendo one I kind of didn't do any ridiculous stuff like that because I didn't want to you know piss anybody off but uh, <laughs> but like I tried to have fun with it and like I, I made it for the for like a coffee table where you can just be like oh I I want to read about Kick Cloud. Here's a little short synopsis about Kick Cloud or a funny thing about a game you know. 
I think that's the way to go. Not just because I hate reading, but because it's more coffee table style. You can just leave through it and get a well, little. And, and what did I mention about my backlog? And I saw other people shaking their head. We have a huge backlog. Do you want a backlog of books that you can't read too? Like, I mean, this is the thing. Like, so when I have my books, it's like, all right, so I want to go through here and read on a really cool spread. Like, if you open up that, like every page, so let me see that. Every page of this book that you read right here, it's like, oh, there's Mega Man 2. There's some awesome artwork. Might bring back some memories and there's a personal story about it you know what i mean like when i was talking about using the codes and how i would play the game without dying and stuff like that's every single page and that's what i want from all my books and they're like i'm, I'm a little selfish because i do my books because of how i like them and then everybody else is like that's how i want to read them too and that's the way to go and, and that's the thing though let your brain fill in the gaps even with this one like i put my nostalgia on the page but you're also thinking about your own nostalgia without having to read like 17 pages on make a man three yeah you're not holding people's <laughs> hands you let them exactly. have, have their own experience i think even modern movie making they don't go to that extent anymore and that's why we still hearken back to the 80s and classic like filmography of the slasher movie and certain stuff like that because they left enough open to the imagination. Yeah. It's the same thing with games. Yeah. And it was like, I think it's freedom through limitation. That's what I like to call it, freedom yeah. through limitation. Well, so what, some of the things that we throw into the game, people will be like, well, what is that? I don't understand what that is. And I'll be like, well, what do you think it is? And they're like, I don't know. It kind of looks like a bush or a tree or something. And I'm like, okay, great. That's exactly what Go it is. Go with it. It's not... But if that's what you think it is, it's fine. You know? it, 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 that's definitely not what it is. <laughs> but I'm not. Who, I, I remember thinking back to other games that I was like, "Oh, I thought that was a hat the whole time," and someone's like, "No, that's a sword." Yeah. And I'm, it, well, it, the, it the classic matter. one is is my artist, the guy that I'm doing T-shirts with, is doing the haunted Halloween '85 his game shirt, and he drew a picture of his character, but in the back there's some bats. And there's no bats in this game. They're birds that come down and dive bomb on you, and they're annoying as hell. <laughs> and they're perfect to have as an antagonist on the shirt, along with the jumpkin pumpkins. Right. Um, but the thing is, is that he had his imagination. He saw that, and the artist said, those look exactly like bats. I'm going to have evil bats in there. It's Halloween. Bats go with Halloween. And he wasn't even going to question it. I saw it. I'm like... Oh, no, no, those are crows. <laughs> like, yeah, but, but why, you know, why correct somebody's imagination? If he thinks it's a bat, go with it. You know, exactly. that's, that's fine. If that's, if that's the way your mind fills in the gaps, perfect. And, and that's one of those things, too, where, like, now we can go full circle to the homebrew scene. And you still have people like him that are making brand new NES games now. And, like, I don't think there's any homebrew games on the convention floor except for Haunted Halloween. Like, I haven't seen any. I've seen people do reproductions and things like that, like, that are out there. But, like, the, the homebrew scene, there's over 200 NES homebrews out there. I'm going to do a book on strictly on NES homebrews in the future. Like, it's happening. I think we're, we're going to launch it, and they might be doing a new game for it. <laughs> A.K.A. might be playable already a little bit. Like, I've heard rumors. So, a question on the homebrews. Yeah. Oh, he, he would oh, know that for sure. 6502 assembly. Yeah. Machine code. Yikes. No, absolutely mm -mm. not. 
Yeah, it's all scripts. It's the, still, the, it's the fortunate thing about the NES community is it's been going for over 10 years now. So the thing is they have some programs in there where you can write some things in a normal human being code that somebody can conceptualize and it will translate it into machine code. But when you have really good programmers, they're probably just moving straight toward yeah. code now. The pro some people, but, and there are a few tutorials for programming in C and compiling it down. Mm -hmm. But it's very inefficient. And it's, it's limited, right? What's that? Yeah, so it's an assembly language, you know, for anybody that doesn't know what assembly language is, and I only know this because I've gotten into it, it's a language specifically written for a single chip. So um, there's like certain calls that you make, but everything is read top to bottom. You can jump around a little bit, but like he was saying, object-oriented, it's not like you define an object and here's the borders and you trace it out and this object can act completely different independently of this yeah, object. No. It's not like that at all. So it's uh, the 6502 comes from the 6502 chip that is the Nintendo, the 8-bit mm -hmm. chip that you know it, uh, from the Nintendo. That's exactly. what it is. So it's 6502 assembly language, and it is archaic. And if you learn 6502 assembly, you can't use it for anything else. So it's like why people learn this, I don't know, but God bless them for learning it. Uh, NintendoAge.com, fantastic website. A huge repository of of information about programming in specifically 6502 assembly. Uh, one of the things that also uses this processor is the Apple II. So you could there would be a little bit carryover to that. But other than that, yeah. if you're not making like an old calculator or something, you're never going to use assembly language for anything. Yeah, for the NES side, the Nintendo Age forums, they have a whole homebrew section where it teaches you step by step how to program your own games. So it's pretty fun. Yeah. It's a fun little Fair. side project, and some people take it to extremes. <laughs> NintendoAge.com. Yeah. It's on his shirt. <laughs> yeah. Like he's, go, yeah, go he's on there and join. It's a fantastic community, and any chance I get to point people to it, I try to. Um, it's like he said, it's been going on for 10 years. We're like Johnny Come Lately's because we've only been doing this for about two years now. Yeah. So, uh, but everybody on there is super cool and totally willing to help you if you have any questions. They love when people get started. You can download a basic version of Pong and then just start tweaking some variables and see what happens. Exactly. The crazy thing about the homebrew scene, though, is typically it's one dude that goes on Nintendo Age or a similar forum like NestDev, because there's a second forum that there's heavy developers on, and they're programming the game. His company, Retrotainment, that he's, that he's working with, they're crazy because you got guys that are programming multiple facets together like the old school Nintendo would do, like Konami would do. You'd have a dude doing music, dude doing graphics, dude doing difficulty and level design and layouts. And that comes together in a pretty concise piece. So if you play their game out on the floor, it plays like an old school Nintendo game. It's not like you're sitting there playing somebody's basement demo of Pong that moves around. Like, yeah. there are a lot of homebrews because I'm doing the book on on the homebrew thing and there's a lot of games that are you know basically tech demos but there are some amazing complicated games out there that are full Nintendo releases they would compete with some of the classics out there like I mean their game Battle Kid Mad Wizard there's a ton of them Legends of Owlia was just released it's like a Legend of Zelda style game with a owl that you can tweak for yeah. for items and oh the bar is just continually raised like people are super into this now yep. and game just keep getting better and it's awesome to see sometimes it's just one guy in his basement making a game and mm -hmm. it's uh, there's a game called lizard that's about to come out and yeah. it looks super awesome and it's just one dude in his basement 
Yeah, and you're wearing lizard skins that give you different powers depending on it, and you can do different things in a level to move puzzles based on the orange lizard skin, and then you like take it off and it like folds off of you, like on the Nintendo, and it looks awesome. Like his animation, the style, it all works really well. Yeah, and like it's pushing those limitations to the max. That's what he's doing. Yeah, it's super cool. And so the the you know just this what we're talking about '90s nostalgia. It's yeah. so ingrained in people that 30 years after a system is released, people are they're like I want to make a game for it you mm-hmm. know and we're our team is making like a concerted effort to try to get to the point of Konami you know where we're making a, a complete game that you're like yeah this feels like a complete game like something that I could have played in 1985 or 86 mm-hmm. or 92 or whatever but the the nostalgia factor is so strong in us it's like we can't get away from it and people are now moving on to Super Nintendo mm-hmm. trying to make homebrews for that system it's a hell of a lot more complex but <laughs> and there's no tools are, out there to help people right but people are trying to do it it's like there's that desire and it comes from nostalgia from 90s nostalgia absolutely I mean, that, and that's the thing, like, that's why I went to 1990 instead of starting when, like, the Nintendo launched or starting in the 80s. The 80s have been covered on YouTube, all over the place. I mean, what was it, the, the video game years, did the whole documentary, and they did the whole 80s. So I'm like, why would I start a book and just retread? I mean, I could always go backward if people really want me to, but I want to start in 1990, because in 1990s, about when I started started getting my NES. I might have gotten it about a year before that, yeah. but I remember getting Super Mario 3 like right when The Wizard came out on VHS, <laughs> which was about 1990s when The Wizard came out on VHS. That was about when I got my system. Yeah. So like, I mean, I had Atari and stuff before that with Pitfall and Pole Position and all the classics, but like that's when I really started coming to my own as a gamer and where I continued to pivot from and start to get better and better and better at gaming yeah and so like that's why i started with 1990 and this is just my side project like my main one i'm doing this whole collector series here um so with the super nintendo one that i just launched on that i launched on kickstarter it just ended last week the complete snes is fully funded it's going to be 500 pages so this is 250 it's going to be 500 pages and there's a second book that got funded. It's called the Super Nintendo Compendium. And that's going to be just like that one, artistic style, personal stories. There's contributors from all over the internet, like crazy, like guys that are like popular on YouTube and guys that are like professional writers are writing in the book. It's, oh, it's insane. Gonna be awesome. It's, it's, it's awesome. ridiculous. And this, the whole Super Nintendo one, it's already done. It's already laid out. All I'm doing is filling in a few of the uh, the fun mini reviews that I'm doing because I'm keeping the same minimalistic style for the Super Nintendo. It's going to be two games per page because I didn't want to have to shrink any of the, uh, the box art for Super Nintendo. So it's two games per page instead of three. But it's going to be this style, but I'm covering everything. So this one was officially licensed U.S. releases, and it doesn't have the unlicensed or the PAL, even though that's all written, because it missed the stretch goal by, like, a grand. So I'm like, with Super Nintendo 1, I'm like, I'm not doing that. So Super Nintendo 1 has everything in it. It's everything that's ever been released. There's, I think, about 20 homebrews for Super NES. That's in the book. It's already there. It's already all done. And I'm just basically finishing her out, and then we're moving toward the personal stories. And that I want all to be done by the fall. Um, the Super Nintendo one's still up for pre-order, so just grab a business card or whatever. You guys can, like, definitely you know, hit me up online. But, um, yeah, you had him? Yeah. Go um, ahead, man. Actually, just a couple of things. First off, I was wondering, 
might the uh, the missed stretch goals make their way way into a future edition? Oh, absolutely, and that's the thing I was talking with him. You know how we kind of mentioned like moving toward like ET, where they're pushing towards a quick release. Well, they're thinking about doing a homebrew release, and if we would have launched in November, that would have had like they're doing Haunted '86 right now, the sequel to Haunted '85, and that time between that and the next game would have been pretty short. And I was like, well, what if I release the complete NES two? with all the missing content that I already have written into a second book, and I launched that at Kickstarter so that way everybody can get their copy, and then we can go to the homebrew book in the early spring, late winter time frame. So that way you guys get an extra you know, 90 days to work on the game and add extra features. And so like, so the complete NES 2, which will also let me do a cheaper run of the a second cop print run of this book, because I, I have a new publisher now, so the, the print run should be cheaper for the next round, which is good, because it was pretty expensive to do the first complete NES. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And that's, and that's the thing, I'm always gonna go grassroots with my stuff. They go grassroots where they do a lot of all their stuff out of house. I'm gonna do the same thing. I mean, if I get a publisher deal or something, it's gonna be their own thing. Like, if somebody wants to do a publishing version of the complete NES, great. Go ahead and do what you want with it. I already have my author's version. <laughs> like, you guys can go ahead and commission me later, but I want my version that I can get out to everybody, all the fans and everything, in my vision. And that's what I'm doing. That's why I go to Kickstarter. That's why I do the whole, you know, self-publishing with a small publisher and all that. I got crazy stuff that I'm doing with the Super Nintendo one that I haven't even announced. So I can announce it here, but it's called a leather cover. So basically, I showed him a picture of it. Oh, it is sick. It is. it is a guy from Europe that's a leather maker. He makes wallets, and he does this burning-type thing for art, and he custom paints it all. And I was like, have you ever done a book cover before? And he's like, oh, I've wanted to. I've just never had a project. I'm like, here's your art. And he sends it to me. I have pictures. You guys could check it out after the panel. Like, this stuff is professional-grade amazingness. And Joe Simcoe, the guy that did Garbage Pail Kids that I got to do the cover, he did a villain's whole artwork piece that he had with my complete NES. So I'm going to have that on the back cover of the, complete, of, the, of the artwork. And I'm giving that as an add-on. So anybody who does – I have a backer kit going right now for the Super Nintendo one. And so anybody who is a backer on the complete SNES can go there and check out, and those are going to be an option. And as soon as he gets me some pictures, they're going to be up on that site. But I also am going to have the complete NES up there, too, because he's doing that as a sample. And it looks so good. Like a, It's just a leather book cover, and it's like, oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> and that's the thing, though. Like, me doing this stuff small, I'm like, well, he's like, well, I'm going to have to charge this much. And I'm like, well, it's awesome. You got you, you, I'm going to charge that. I'm not putting any extra prices on it. And that's the thing. Anybody that's associated with my project, anybody that's doing anything, they get their item. They provide it to the, to the people that are supporting it because we're all just passionate gamers. That's what I am. I did this book because that's what I wanted. And then people like it. Like, I'm, I'm great with it. Like, I'm not here to become a millionaire or anything doing it because, I mean, I work just like everybody else. I just love games. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it small. So the complete NES 2, definitely happening. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I just have one of the one thing that I, I like to ask you. If go go ahead. To a group of people. Um, something concerning the 90s you know back then you didn't the, the most you saw of a game before it was released was in a magazine yeah you know? yeah 
and you got a you got a few images, and you're that's how you build the hype of a, of a game back then. And now, obviously, it's totally different. You get playable demos, and you get little pieces of it leaked to you yeah. over time. I hate the new way. I don't like it at all. I think that part of the reason that people are so nostalgic for these games is because they, it just hits you in the face. You bought it or you rented it, and then there it was. And there was no, like, user feedback or anything like that. It was just like, here's the game. Uh, so I don't know. If any of you have any anything to say about this, I would love Go ahead, to man. hear it. AVGN is famous for a reason, though, man. AVGN is famous for a reason? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it goes a hundred percent with what you're saying. Fair, yeah. So right, but is that you think that's because people didn't piecemeal it out, get feedback, make alterations? I, I wonder how many of those games would actually have gotten released if people got to play them before they came out. Like, so if they did some thorough beta testing. Yeah. Okay. Which is a fair point. But would it be worse then to have a smaller catalog of games, but they're all really good? And the other question is, if they did that, would the AVGN have had those stories, and would he have been popular with everybody watching it, connecting with those sh stories of shitty games that we all played and enjoyed at some fashion? <laughs> yeah. Go buy back. Guess who had Back to the Future as a kid? Is one of his Christmas games. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But That's so a good point. For every bad one, there'll be one like Legend of Zelda that you're just like, this is changing my life. That, that is true. Mm -hmm. So, I, again, I, I don't, I'm not saying one way is better or worse. Preference for me is that I just want it all at once, maybe an image or two. Okay, I want that one, and then it's, it's a crapshoot. Yeah. What do you guys say? Playing devil's advocate for a moment. Sure. I, I love the devil's advocate. I like the modern system. Okay. Let me make a very good decision on what I'm buying and what I'm not buying. Mm -hmm. But I did I didn't watch any trailers. I didn't look at I didn't pre-order. I didn't look at anything for Overwatch. And Overwatch. I started playing it. And then I bought it and it hit me in the face and it's my favorite game this year. Yeah. Yeah. So I see what you're saying. It's one of those okay. nostalgic things. And it wouldn't have been the same experience if I had looked at things before. Yeah. So you cuz right. you would have made an opinion before you even played it. Mhm. Mm for the old, the old way. In fact, I still—that's still how I get my information about the games. I, I don't. There's not a big video review site. I oh yeah. Watch or, I never. I don't have a single downloadable demo on any of my consoles. I've never downloaded a demo ever. I, yeah. By magazine previews alone and screenshots. Mm -hmm. And I have. I stopped counting somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 games, and I can't think of one that I bought at all where I was just. Way off and disappointed. Yeah. Well, like nowadays, I mean, we all have our preferences too. I mean, once you once you play enough, you know what you like and what you don't. Absolutely. And, uh, the magazine preview system, which is what they had back in the eighties and nineties, is still sufficient. I, I think it's better. Cool. I mean, yeah. the other way is just kind of like having your Christmas present under this tree and wrapping off a chunk of paper every week. That, he, yeah, that's what I think. And at some point, you're like, okay, I, I know this game now. I'm just basically waiting for them to finish well, the level. What it down to is somebody else's opinion anyways. So it's always somebody else's opinion. Unless you're watching someone's opinion who is very much in line with your own, you're still liable to be disappointed. Yeah.
Mm-hmm. Now, what, what, obviously, it was better back in the day when because you had a cartridge, and if it sucked, you could be like, hey, I'll trade you this for your game or whatever, which you can't necessarily do today. But still, I, I just like to get people's feedback on if they prefer that, if you have had, like you said, you have a great experience with yeah. this. And for me, I had great experiences with it, namely Maniac Mansion. I had no idea what it was. Yeah. Played it, and again, like I was saying earlier, started having dreams about it. It was incredible. So, so. so, so one thing that we like to do on uh, VGBS is we do something we call bullshit homework. And basically, we talk about something that we're going to play, and I make sure I don't do anything, make any consorted opinion about it or anything before we play it. So playing Haunted Halloween, like, um, we went through, we didn't touch it, we didn't go online, we didn't watch videos, and then we both popped it in and started playing it as a new nostalgic experience. We did the same thing with Goonies 1, the first Goonies game. Not Goonies 2 that's on the NES, the one that was on the Famicom and in the arcade systems. And some of these games have now become some of my favorites because now for the podcast, we're playing it. And what we do is we post it on the podcast, we play it thoroughly, we overanalyze it, we, yeah. because that we make that our focus as well. Because that goes to that whole thing where we have too many games in our collection. When we say, all right, that's my homework game for the, for the month, or for the week, that's the only game I'm playing now for the NES or for whatever system. Because we've done Final Zone 2 for the P- PC Engine. And that game is, is ridiculously bad. And, but it was fun. It was a fun experience. <laughs> yeah. question Yeah, yeah. No question what my friends and I talk about all the time. Uh, I mentioned I have, a, I have a decent-sized collection. I'm sure you guys have big collections. And you, and you said about what a backlog of games you had. Mm-hmm. Now, every game that I've purchased in my collection, every single one of them was bought new. I don't have a single used game. But here's the issue I find myself um, facing. When I bought those games, I, I had no intention to ever leave them in the wrap, just to buy them as collector's pieces. I intended on opening and playing them all. Well, some of them have become so valuable now that same game is available on eShop or PlayStation Network or whatever for 10 or $15. Or an EverDrive that you can play on the original hardware. Now, I certainly prefer to have the authentic experience. Original game, original console, original hardware. I, I, I know that's better. But when games start reaching the value of hundreds or even thousands of dollars, do you open the game to play it the original way or do you play, do you play it on eShop or whatever? You, yeah, you buy a used copy. And you keep your sealed one, right? It, it really all depends on how nostalgic you want it to be. Because if you want that classic, open the wrapper off of a game, playing it. But if you already know about the game, well, this games I don't, I don't know too much about. For example, I still have a, I have a sealed copy of Kenji's uh, Good Saga. Okay. I just saw his eyes go. <laughs> we got some people freaking out in the crowd. <laughs> like, <laughs> Panzer Dragoon Saga sealed. Yeah, right. like, yeah, yeah, doing hundreds of them. I don't, I don't, I don't, I never intended on. I, I always thought it was silly to not open them because if you don't open them, first of all, you don't even know if the game works. So, so you intended to play them, you just didn't get around to playing them. I just them. never got around to it. I mean, if you don't oh, I'm in your boat. Nothing more than cardboard and plastic sitting on the shelf. Yeah. yeah. So what you do is you find somebody sitting about four seats to the right of you, and you <laughs> give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's a great question. So I, what do you, my question is, though, what do yeah. you guys do? Do you, okay. guys, do you guys, well, it sounds like you might just buy the games used to begin with. You might not be that's that. him. I, I might have a different. I don't have any game that I haven't played. 
I don't own a game that I do. Do you open them or do you play the emulated version or the eShop version or the PlayStation Network version? Okay, so there's no one consistent answer across the board that I would do with this, but it's what I was saying with the EverDrive aspect. You can play that game on one cartridge right now on the original hardware on your PVM and get the same exact gaming experience as you would putting in that cartridge. If you have a sealed stadium events and you open it, like, you're playing track and field. Like, you might as well play track and field. It's the same game. If you're opening it, you're essentially, like, lighting $10,000 on fire. Like, it's one of those things where it depends on what you want to get out of gaming, though. You happen to have them sitting there. I'm never going to sell the thing, so... Yeah. It's really not of any value. And if you're never going to sell them, you might as well play them. Well, is there any game out there that's, let's that's say... That's why it's a case-by-case basis. It really is what is your nostalgia. An expensive game out there that you want... That's that you could maybe trade for something like that. But you don't want to get rid of the games, I, never, I know. I yeah. Tell you what, I never, I never, I've never, I traded one time in my life. Yeah. When I came back from Germany, it was right whenever the 16-bit era was ending and the 32-bit era was starting. Yeah. I was over there all of uh, 95 and 96, so I kind of felt like I missed out on two years of. I mean, I may as well been on the moon for two years. Yeah. Yeah. So. There were some 16-bit games that I just played to death and beat over and over and over. And I figured, out, I'm never going to get any more enjoyment out of these games. They were all in pristine condition. I traded them in for games that I wanted for the 32-bit systems, and I, I ended up buying almost all of them back at way more. I don't, I'm not even tell you what I traded in because you'll be sick of your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know guys that traded in their NES collection to get their Sega CD add-on and their oh, launch game. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, really, dude? And he's like, yeah, I got it uh, Sherlock Holmes, and it was terrible. And yeah. yeah, and it was like, it wasn't even Sonic CD or one of the good ones. Like, I was like, oh my goodness. And I know so many people that used to do that. And so just along the lines of what you're saying, I, my best friend uh, and business partner, he has a similar thing where... He wants to, his dream in life is to save up enough money to buy the original LJN Wrestler collection and open them all just so he can smell them. Because he, as a kid, smells like the macho remembers man. that smell of opening up a new game. So I understand the, the experience of like yeah. how intense it could be just feeling that wrapper tear open, the smell. See, see I enjoy so doing that now. I would now. maybe say open it. I would almost say that too. And like my thing was like with the whole Amiibo craze thing, I have the complete collection of the Amiibos and I open them all up. And I told my daughter, I'm like, smell this, this brand new toy. And my daughter gets that nostalgia. She's going to have that growing up. You'll see her running around. She's four. Like, I'm trying to do it all like how I used to do it as a kid. Yeah. And make sure she gets it all right. Because I don't want her to keep all toys sitting on a shelf somewhere unopened. Like, that's not right. Like, she needs to go play with stuff. And the same thing. I don't think I own – I have a few things sealed that have happened across, like – in the few last few years that are sealed, like I found a sealed Caltron six and one, which is pretty rare. Um, am I going to open it? No, but I'm probably going to bring it to a convention or something. Like I'm not going to open it. I'm not going to play it. Yeah. Like I don't need to have it in my collection. That's how I am though. But I move around quite a bit for my day job. So like every three years, I'm moving somewhere new, and I don't want to chance what happened with my Friday the Thirteenth Jason collectible. Where it got all bent up in the move, and now my Jason figure, that's the NES Jason, is all bent up. And it's like, ugh, it's killer. But yeah, it's one of those things. So I mean, my recommendation would be if you're not getting rid of it, you're not going anywhere soon. You might as well like set aside a weekend and play that one game at a time 
and make it a big deal. Like start a blog, a free blog, or do something, yeah, and like let us all paper. partake in it. Video you don't have to. So other people can share in your. Experience. Oh, and they will they will hate on you, and you will get popular. It'll be fun. <laughs> oh my god, he opened up a dragoon's uh, Panzer dragoon saga. <laughs> yeah. They're gonna and you'd be like, guess what? I'm playing it, and it's amazing. You know what I mean? Like if you share your nostalgia for it, you do it the right way. I will bask in the glory with you. It'd be great to see somebody get a new experience with the game. Or if you want to go viral, open it up, crack it, throw it in the trash. Oh, man. <laughs> Make a video of that. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't you, do that. You'll get a lot of YouTube hits if you yeah. want to <laughs> No, but I, I like it. I mean, I go from the writing perspective. I've had multiple video game websites all throughout the years, like from where I used to write my own emulator in a browser that somebody else took, monetized, and got sued for because you can't monetize somebody else's property. Uh, but like, I used to, I like writing my thoughts out because it's more permanent, and that's why like the book aspect is really good for me because now I have something that can go on a bookshelf forever, and it's pretty cool. So, like, if you document your experience, you'll have it for you to live back on in five years when you're like, when did I open up that game? Oh, yeah, here it is, and here was my thoughts. Because I'm one of those people, too, where I'm in the now, and, like, next week, if I don't record this for a podcast or something, like, I'll forget the cool freaking stories. If you notice, this whole yeah. panel is just all, all of us BSing. That's what I like to do for all my panels. It's fun. <laughs> like, it's, it's the best part because everybody has a story. I tell my stories. I like hearing other people's stories. Stories. It's yeah. the, it's fun. Are you here to tell us to? Yeah, she oh, is gonna yell at us. <laughs> no, hey, I get not it. a problem. I just wanted to say before we wrap it up, thanks guys for listening. Thanks for participating. Absolutely. For me on. So, where can you find your stuff? Oh yeah, so uh, the haunted Halloween series eighty five is out now. Uh, we got a booth in there. You can go to cashandculture.com to buy it. Mm-hmm. Eighty six will be coming out uh, this fall. He may have it for testing if you pull his arm at the booth today. Yeah, <laughs> a wink and a nod might get you. Uh, Maybe test. you can play it like and do what he hates: beta testing it before the game. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, for my stuff, I have business cards. Uh, also, tinyurl.com slash snesbacker will get you to my whole Super Nintendo project. I have, that's where the backer kit's at. And you can also get the complete NES. You can get 90. 91 is at my publisher. I'm waiting for the damn proof so I can proofread it and get do the full print run. That's on Patreon. Um, I only do it per book. I don't do a monthly cost or anything. So every time I do a book, I let everybody know hey I'm about to collect for the book and I do a print run I may move it to somewhere like Indiegogo in the future but the thing is though is that like I'm gonna keep pushing these out till we have the Britannica of video games like we might as well um, I mean I'm OCD enough to make it happen because it's fun for me so uh, thanks everybody for coming yeah. I love the stories it was great thanks Eric. <laughs>